Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 35, the last episode of Belabored in 2013. Yes. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to everyone. We will not be around next week, so we're sure you're going to miss us desperately. But mm-hmm. we hope that uh, today our, our year-end show will be enough to tide you over for an extra yes. week. Plenty of good cheer and a few lumps of coal as well. <laughs> just a few. Just a few lumps of coal. Um, but in the good cheer category, and since it is holiday shopping season, um, you all should probably know if you have not heard already that uh, for the first time, employees in an Amazon.com fulfillment center, what they, their term for those horrible warehouses full of stuff where they, you know, where people pack things for you in semi-miserable conditions yes. or less than semi-miserable also conditions. known as the gulags of online shopping now now nobody's being they're not gulags okay okay well well we'll, we'll let you decide for yourself after we uh, go through the next round <laughs> but so on december 6 the international association of machinists and aerospace workers filed a union election petition with the nlrb on behalf of 30 equipment maintenance and repair technicians working at an Amazon fulfillment center in Middletown, Delaware. So this means that these 30 technicians will be allowed to vote on a union. This notably does not include more than 1,500, um, they call them pickers and packers, In that is how they are described in this uh, Bloomberg Businessweek article, mm-hmm. who move products from shelves into boxes. Uh, the people who, um, if you read Mac McClellan's expose of life inside an Amazon warehouse, or um, I believe our friend Gabe Thompson's piece about being a temp worker in an Amazon warehouse, you will know sort of what that life is like. They are not going to be eligible to vote, but this will be the first time that there is a union anywhere at an Amazon facility in the United States. Of course, Amazon has hired a union-busting law firm to help it, to aid it in the manner, um, according to the nicely neutral journalist at Bloomberg Businessweek. So we shall see what goes on there, but um, that is a positive development, at least a little bit, if there's a little tiny wedge of, of organizing within Amazon warehouses, it can hopefully only get bigger. Right. And um, uh, on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, you have another Amazon industrial action going on. And if you're wondering why uh, U.S.-based uh, Amazon managers are so concerned about uh, organized labor having a presence in its U.S. facilities, look no further than uh, Bad Hersfeld, Leipzig, and Graben, Germany, which is where unionized workers actually engage in an industrial action right in time for the busy Christmas shopping season. And uh, they went on strike. Amazon employs more than 9,000 workers in Germany, according to the BBC. And um, a few days ago, a delegation of uh, German workers they called a strike action uh, in those uh, in those cities in Germany, and they also had a parallel action at Amazon's headquarters in Seattle. So they actually made it sort of a global phenomenon, and I hope they you know swung by the uh, international machinists and, and said hi to them. But um, anyway, um, there was solidarity all around uh, because the uh, hundreds of workers uh, did not show up for work, and um, they uh, argued that they were being paid unfairly. And the union representing them, called Verdi, um, said that uh, the strike actually, you know, had been well supported. It was an unprecedented action. And this actually might get Amazon's attention because Amazon's sales in Germany are growing very fast. And um, they are making inroads in the online shopping market in Europe, just as uh, they have already sort of colonized uh, North America. And, um, you know, hopefully this can be an inspiration to some of the U.S. workers who are looking to organize on their own here in the U.S., but it also shows um, what a global phenomenon this Amazon style of work is. And interestingly enough, one of the reasons that the German workers were mobilizing was because they said they were misclassified. Um, They were basically saying that um, the strenuous conditions were unfair, not just because they were poor working conditions, but because they were classified differently than other warehouse staff in Germany, right? Um, Their argument was that the company has classified the staff as so-called logistics workers, and they are therefore um, entitled to a different standard of pay. Right. Um, and uh, Verdi said in a statement, the Amazon system is characterized by low wages, permanent performance pressure, and short-term contracts. Sound familiar? So Weird. Germany, uh, German workers are apparently pushing back pretty hard against the American style of warehouse work that is being imposed on them. So hopefully um, that can be an inspiration to us all this holiday season. Thanks, German workers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Germany. And closer to home, once again, there will be 
quite possibly the first union in the fast food campaign when about 220 food service workers at the Smithsonian Institution will be represented by a union. Um, Interestingly, it appears to be Unite Here and not SEIU, which has backed a lot of the fast food organizing that the workers will be joining. But Paco Fabian from Good Jobs Nation, one of the, the advocacy groups that has worked in with the nation's capital area, um, fast food workers who work at publicly funded institutions, said to the Washington Post, people have wondered whether this is just a media-driven phenomenon. Uh, Here's an example of something that is tangible. I don't know if that's uh, pot shots at any particular critics, but Unite Here Local 23 in D.C. has apparently won the right to bargain with Restaurant Associates, which is the contractor that runs these food service eateries at six different Smithsonian museums. The union and the workers continue to advocate for President Obama to sign an executive order that would apply to all federal contractors like this who receive money and provide services to require a living wage for all of the workers who work for them so that our tax dollars are no longer subsidizing people making like $8 an hour. Mm -hmm. So we shall see if that works, but it is pretty interesting to see the first union coming out of this now year and a few months long campaign about which more later right and um you know for those of you who don't want to get mixed up in all the confusing alphabet soup of which union is representing whom let's just say that this is a great victory for everyone who's participated in the campaign and you know leave it at that um and also i think it's a great convergence between sort of the low-wage worker organizing that is fighting for the right to unionize and this sort of broader advocacy around wage inequality and holding the federal government accountable for the poverty wages that it pays its contractors so um it's getting at you know the federal role in all of this Mm -hmm. um the broader sort of social responsibility of reducing inequality in this country and also the role that organized labor can play inside and outside the formal union structure to bring equity to some of the lowest paid workplaces that also happen to be linked to the nation's capital and you know uncle sam so yep anyway nice convergence there um And speaking of the feds, um, we're going to stay in Washington for the last update. Um, The Family Act uh, was recently introduced. I have a piece about that in these times this week. And it would offer paid leave insurance on a national level, and it would be one of the most comprehensive pieces of legislation yet to uh, fill a huge and rather egregious gap in our social safety net for workers um, who basically have to choose between a paycheck and uh, time off to care for their families or their own medical needs um, when an illness strikes or when they face some sort of long-term medical condition. There are several states um, with some sort of paid leave insurance either proposed or already implemented. Um, This would bring all those efforts sort of under one broad umbrella and provide um, national uh, paid leave insurance. It's a little bit broader than paid sick days in the sense that it can be used to pay for things like, um, you know, a few months off to care for a newborn. So this is for more long-term yeah. uh, medical issues. And it's, it's 12 it's, weeks, right? Um, it's, it's about 12 weeks, yep. uh, the equivalent of 12 weeks. Um, and it would provide partial wage replacement um, based on an insurance system that is essentially self-financed. It would work a lot like Social Security. So in a sense, it's, it's not exactly like you're getting total paid time off. But, you know, if you have paid sick days, that could, this could be a great complement to that. Or if you don't have paid sick days um, and you just need time off for the big stuff like getting cancer treatment or if a loved one is in critical condition and you need to stay home and care for them. This or, you be, know, if you have a baby. If you have a baby because it does happen sometimes. Um, People do and, that. Right. And, you know, uh, it should it's worth noting um, the big elephant in the room here is that this is going to be especially beneficial for women because women have been disproportionately impacted by inequitable and I would say rather unjust um, leave policies in this country. So um, this would be a pretty good step. Um, It would apply to a broad array of firms, um, you know, from small to large, and it would basically be um, a, a really good way to not only, you know, 
help businesses because it would reduce worker turnover. Workers wouldn't have to lose their jobs or leave their jobs just because they had a medical issue and provide long-term income security and, and allow people to be healthy. And, you know, I mean, no matter how much of a hard-nosed capitalist you are, no matter how much of a Scrooge you are, um, you understand the value of having workers who don't come to work sick and miserable and depressed all the time. So, um, yes, that would be our, our, lesson, <laughs> our lesson for this holiday season. We have a lot of lessons for this holiday season. Um, Speaking of... We're on a good news streak. We're on a good news streak. So now we're going to bring that down. No, not yet. Not yet. We're going to ruin it for you. So because it is the end of the year, we thought that we would do a little bit of a roundup of the year in labor news. Some good, some bad, some... Ugly. Some definitely ugly. Um, Some undercovered, although possibly not quite as undercovered here on Belabored. And some things that we're looking forward to seeing in 2014. Um, so in terms of something good that happened this year for labor, Michelle, what's, what's your number one good story from? Okay. So I'll pick from my hat of my, my very small hat of good stories. Now, Um, now. Right. One of my, and and this might actually count as an undercovered story as well, but one of my big good stories for the year was that, uh, domestic workers, are finally getting some of uh, some respect for the work that they do. You might have noticed that uh, this fall, the California Senate uh, passed a Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights. Um, so earlier this year, that was signed into law after years, literally years of battling under two administrations. Jerry Brown finally um, yeah, signed it into law. Um, it was somewhat pared down from the earlier version that had been proposed um, because that had been vetoed, um, as we've said many times before. Um, all these good um, pro-worker pieces of legislation end up getting magically jettisoned when they reach the uh, office of the executive branch. And that's yeah. exactly what happened with this Domestic Workers Bill of Rights law, despite um, their you know, super liberal governor, Jerry Brown. Anyway, um, it finally passed, and it guarantees somewhat a parity with um, the state's minimum wage and overtime laws for all workers. So it just brings those protections into line for domestic workers who mm-hmm. have, broadly speaking, been left out of many of the federal level protections. So, um, you know, they get minimum wage, they get overtime guarantees on par with other workers in California. And um, it follows similar legislation that has already been passed in New York and Hawaii. And so hopefully this can be part of a broader trend towards greater equity for domestic workers. It also provides other um, benefits for domestic workers, like rest times and meal breaks, um, taking into account that, Who needs you know, those? right, that, that domestic workers, um, you know, sometimes they, they like to eat and, and sleep on weird, occasion. Weird how that yeah, works. Yeah, right. Um, one thing that they couldn't get in there was an entitlement to a certain number of hours of sleep, because, you know, that's just, I mean, it's way too that, much. That, is, way too much. that is frankly gratuitous. Yeah. I mean. um, but um, it, it did pass, and that's... I mean, I mean, that's the important thing. It, of course, um, disproportionately affects um, immigrant women of color. Um, a lot of these workers are uh, pretty disenfranchised, um, and they're struggling just to survive, and this provides some modicum of equity for them. So congratulations to groups like the National Domestic Workers Alliance um, and other groups that have fought for this. Um, also, another uh, parallel victory to that is um, on the federal level, the Obama administration um, finally uh, closed a long-standing loophole that would provide federal minimum wage and overtime pay to a different set of in-home workers who are home health aides, um, and they sometimes fall under a somewhat different category than domestic workers. In a few ways, they're they're actually less protected because domestic yeah. workers actually get the federal minimum wage. Um, home health aides are basically stuck in this huge sort of legal, you know, right. um, black hole, basically, where um, all they can rely on is, is state-level protections, and they are not covered under federal law. But uh, the, Ob- the Obama administration, after much um, hemming and hawing and regulatory bureaucratic red tape, they finally agreed to change their interpretation of the original congressional statute and include home health aides. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's actually really important because these direct care workers are an incredibly important part of our workforce and our social service infrastructure. Um, we 
often overlook them, but the fact is that anyone who's uh, watched you know the aging phenomenon happen in this country and seen trends in mm-hmm. aging care um, since the baby boomers have sort of uh, created this massive gray wave, yes, you know more uh, uh, older people are staying at home and uh, they need care in the home and in their communities, and and that's actually really a pretty positive development, I think, in, right. in home care. You know, moving people out of institutions, but in order to make sure that they are treated well, um, we need to have decently paid, well-trained, dedicated workers caring for them. And these are the direct care workers who are directly affected by the administration's rules. So hundreds of thousands of these workers will now have Fastest protections. growing job in America. Yes, indeed. And, and growing by the day. Yeah. And uh, currently only um, about 21 states in Washington, D.C. provide some wage and hour protections to care workers. And again, you know, with both direct care workers and domestic workers, although there have been some gains on the state and local front, enforcement continues to be a challenge. Mm-hmm. But frankly, the fact that the federal government is at least including them in this framework of um, laws and protections is a step forward because yeah. that gives them some legal backbone when they decide to hold their employers accountable. Yeah. Whether or not they have the social resources and the legal know-how to do that is sort of the next step for organizers. Right. But at least grassroots activists know that you know there's a corner of the federal government and you know some of the state legislatures that, that do have their back in this. And so now it's up to um, community activists to help bridge that gap. Yeah. And, and another thing, on the international front, and I like, like to squeeze in an international story every once in a while, on the international front, there's been a huge sort of efflorescence of domestic worker organizing uh, on a global scale. And the International Labor Organization recently enacted an accord on domestic workers' rights that basically enshrines these rights or codifies them on an international level um, within the international labor law framework. Obviously, not every country has acceded to these rules, but the fact that the ILO is behind it and is promulgating these rules and telling activists, you know, take this back to your communities and advocate around this global framework, it actually is having impacts. And we see um, in uh, Brazil, Argentina, and other uh, countries, they actually have taken steps to give domestic workers union rights, which is actually something that is sorely lacking here in the United States. So in many ways, domestic worker activism has been surging ahead in other countries. And uh, they're also um, you know, taking steps to crack down on uh, labor trafficking and just the systematic abuse and exploitation that many domestic workers face around the world. And this also feeds into the broader human rights issues around migrant rights because so many of these domestic workers mm-hmm. are um, migrants from poorer countries to richer countries, um, particularly, you know, uh, for instance, rich Gulf oil nations that discriminate horribly against um, domestic workers. So um, in a lot of ways, this is a human rights story. It's also a labor story. And again, it's another lesson for people here in America who uh, sometimes take for granted the fact that, you know, oh, we have a higher quality of life and, you know, why do we need to advocate for these things or pay attention to international law? Well, this is why. Um, Because you look at the rest of the world and it should really put some of us to shame. So So it's, it's no secret that sort of the big labor story of the last year, year and a half has been the organizing of low-wage workers, of workers at fast food restaurants like we were just talking about, at Walmart, that this sort of rise of the the one-day strike as a tactic that is really used to be disruptive without really needing to, without needing at all to organize a majority of the workers in a workplace. That just continued to grow in 2013. As we were just saying a few minutes ago, we're seeing the first actual union victory from that movement in a fast food restaurant. Um, I personally still maintain that Walmart will go out of business before it will allow a union, and I'm probably okay with that result, although the workers do not ask for that result, I must say. That is just me. Um, But in either case, right, we're seeing... We'd be really happy if you proved us wrong on that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Organize Walmart. I would love to see it happen. But so what we're seeing, it's it's such a cliche to say that the conversation is changing. Um, but the president did just make a speech on economic inequality. But we, we know that this president is very good at making speeches. I would like to see him do something. That executive order that I was just mentioning a few minutes ago would be a good start. Um, it would not be enough. Raising the minimum wage would also be a good start. It would also not be enough. And 
the thing that's more interesting to me, and I've probably said this a million times on this podcast, so I really apologize, longtime listeners, I'm a bit of a broken record on this, is that worker power takes very interesting forms. Once people have a little bit of organizing skill, once people have a little bit of awareness of their rights, once people have sort of tasted what it feels like to take action and realize that it's not the end of the world, that you're either not going to get fired or that people will have your back if something bad happens to you, people do sort of amazing things when they've learned, when they've got just a little bit of of support, when they've got just a little bit of power. Imagine what this movement can actually do with a little bit more support, with a little bit more organizing training. Um, it'll be they interesting. They have nothing to lose but their chains, oh, in other Jesus. words. Yeah. <laughs> God, I hate or, when I'm secretly to, quoting Marx. Right. Um, <laughs> or to borrow a more recent meme, uh, courage is contagious. Courage, yes. But it, and it's, it's also been a big year, I should say, for, for criticism of these movements, which I think um, it's very important to do to have. We've certainly talked about it on this podcast several times. Um, Some possible negatives, some questions about what kind of power is being built. It's still very early, again, in this movement to see, to say how things are going to turn out, what the results are going to be. We can't say that sort of often enough that these things are not uh, instantaneous wins that because you do not have unions at every McDonald's across the country in a year does not mean that there will never be big changes. And so as we go forward, um, I will be a little cliche here and say, we'll obviously, we'll obviously keep talking about this. We'll obviously keep trying to think critically about it, but I don't think we should have any, you know, question that this is a positive development for labor this year. Um, and I, I should also say that, you know, it ultimately, I think um, there are many ideological debates to be had about the direction of the movement and organizing tactics and all this stuff. But ultimately, you know, if we want to give primacy to the, the needs and the struggles of individual workers, then, um, you know, I, 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 my hope is that if nothing else, this movement will give them the confidence to pursue their own battles in their own workplaces. And maybe if the ultimate outcome is, is perhaps not a centralized victory, but a decentralized general sense of political energy and momentum, then I, I think that that in and of itself is worth fighting for. And it doesn't need to have one big name or awesome hashtag or anything like that um, or rebranded by any specific union for that matter. Um, what matters is that uh, is that it makes a meaningful difference in people's lives. Not to get all you know, fluffy and hippy-dippy about it, but I think sometimes never. we need to, you know, just keep, keep our eye on the ball, rather. So, anyway. Uh, but also on the economic inequality front, and, you know, speaking of uh, federal government sort of failing to do things, the state minimum wage battles, I think, are another happy story um, of this year. Uh, the New Jersey measure uh, recently passed, which actually um, was unique in that it not only raised the state's minimum wage, but it, it actually indexed it to the cost of living. So that actually does something unprecedented, which is take the minimum wage outside of the realm of politics and makes it you know, a basic entitlement uh, under the state's constitution, essentially making it a right. right? Um, and uh, you know, it should be noted that the federal minimum wage um, is, is particularly beholden to the whims of Congress. And if you've been watching anything that happens in this Congress, which is single-digit um, approval ratings, you will know that that is a very unhealthy thing for workers. So, you know, while the federal minimum wage action continues to lag, Obama's currently backing a proposal to raise the federal minimum wage to about $10, $10.10 an hour, which would be, you know, a pretty good boost. Um, you, you know, a lot of states have actually surged ahead and um, have uh, raised their minimum wages um, well above the uh, federal floor, which is currently uh, $7.25. So with that, New Jersey law becomes the fourth state to raise its minimum wage this year, following New York, Connecticut, and California. California recently um, actually was the first state in the nation to sort of hit that magic number of of, uh, the $10 hourly minimum wage. But, you know, uh, it, it just speaks to a broader phenomenon of states not wanting to wait for the feds to act. Um, So, you know, that is promising. And of course, you know, as the debate around inequality continues to um, unfold around the country with these worker actions and other things like that, you know, the fight for 15, you see these different numbers um, rolled around. It's important to keep in mind that um, 
the, the minimum wage is there for a reason, and uh, organizing is definitely important, but um, it also helps to have a government that is actually on the side of workers for once mm-hmm. and can offer some sort of baseline, right, um, that, that is some sort of yardstick mm-hmm. uh, by which economic justice can be measured. Um, and so when we have an egregiously low minimum wage that no one can live on, um, <laughs> that, that's a pretty bad place for workers to be starting from. Yeah. So raising the floor will ultimately help some of those more localized, more grassroots organizing efforts to push for something yeah. well beyond the minimum wage because obviously the minimum is just the minimum, right? right. Um, so yeah, it's a combination of things uh, that we need to be fighting for. But you know, we already see that um, the benefits of a higher wage floor are, you know, they broadly help not only the very poorest workers, but they help everyone. Um, and you know, that is a really good counter argument to some of this fear mongering from the right that says, oh, if you you know raise the minimum wage, well, according to my uh, macroeconomics 101 textbook, that means that employers will be reluctant to hire new workers. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just frankly not borne out by the data. The fact is that the economy is very dynamic and what's good for the poorest workers often has very good benefits down the line for workers at higher wage levels. So trickle up. And special gold star to SeaTac Washington, which um, just raised its minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. So yes, they, 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 they get the our special our special holiday cookie for winning everything. Yes. So my my other sort of big exciting thing this year, um, my big positive story, I think is that we're seeing sort of historic organizing among some of these misclassified workers, right? I'm particularly interested in the port truck drivers organizing because they are at a very strategically important place in the global economy. But we're seeing everywhere workers fighting this this tendency to be classified as independent contractors, as, you know, something else. This This idea that you're better off because you're an independent contractor and you're your own boss and you control your life because you, you know, in the case of the poor truck drivers, because you own your truck or more often you lease your truck from your company that you work for at, you know, ridiculous rates. Right. The um, neoliberal mythology of the ownership society. Exactly. And the, and this kind of organizing is really not just it's it's exciting because it is at a strategic sort of choke point, like as one of the... Uh, Port truck drivers from Savannah, Georgia, told me in a piece that will be coming out very soon, if we all had a nationwide movement and stopped working three days, there'd be nothing in any store in America. But also because they really are challenging that neoliberal ideology of the ownership society, right? That they are saying that, like, no, actually, this is, I'm not my own boss. You're still my boss. You just get to, like, shove all the costs back off on me. So, I mean, we've seen, we talked a few weeks ago with Susie Cagle about the um, wildcat strike among port truck drivers in Oakland, California. Um, we saw strikes of independent or misclassified as independent contractor port truck drivers at the ports of LA and Long Beach. Um, we're seeing organizing in Savannah. There have been union votes for the first time in 30 years in this industry at a port trucking company in New Jersey. And so this is really, I can't stress enough, this is the industry by which globalization of production has been made possible in this country. You can't outsource cheap production for Walmart or Amazon.com to Bangladesh or China without having cheap labor that brings those products into this country. And, and the just-in-time, so-called just-in-time exactly. good production system. Exactly. means that workers so, are always at the mercy of being on-call, so-called on-call. All right. And so if these port truck drivers, for instance, decided to, like we said, shut down a few ports, it would be amazing what would happen to the U.S. economy. Um, we're just saying... Not to put any great. ideas in people's heads, you know, capitalism, garden to uh, um, But, you know, okay, so now that we've been positive for a little while, Michelle... Yes. What was I the was, worst story? I was away my fantasy of global capitalism grinding to a halt. Uh, <sighs> for just a few minutes. Right, so here's my downer story. Yeah. Um, we, we did want to talk about um, pensions, right? Um, so that is, a, that, is a, that is a downer, definitely. Um, so basically, you know, we've discussed on the show before, uh, there have been ongoing pension battles. Um, Illinois and Detroit are the two pension battlegrounds that have been in the news lately for somewhat different reasons. Detroit is uh, facing, you know, bankruptcy, and so pensions have been sort of caught up in that whole sort of, you know, 
purge um, of all of the uh, basically a, a total economic restructuring of the city. So pensions have gotten cut up in that as one of the casualties in the crossfire. Pension battles in Illinois um, have been sort of a different story and in some ways a bit more representative of some of the crisis or so-called crisis surrounding pension financing uh, around the country. Uh, Civil service pensions are often flagged as one of the huge sort of unsustainable budgetary costs that are crippling the finances of states and uh, cities. And um, Illinois is uh, sort of at the I guess, vanguard of that battle because um, they have a particularly poorly financed um, pension system. And they recently voted uh, in what many say is a somewhat undemocratic way um, to gut their pensions, basically sort of a death by a thousand cuts. They um, are planning on implementing a number of cutbacks, um, basically that would undermine uh, benefits through things like, you know, um, cost of living uh, cutbacks and, and everything like that, and also, um, you know, or cutting benefits for new hires, um, you know, uh, uh, other other things of that nature that would basically slow down the, the growth of costs in the pension system. But I think it's important when we're assessing pensions nationwide to step back and see that, um, first of all, not all pension systems are, are as drastically underfunded as many lawmakers make them out to be. Um, some of them actually have, you know, fairly rational solutions that are at the disposal of these lawmakers, but in their typical disaster capitalism fashion. They will uh, make a big stink out of pensions being underfunded and the state is going under because of these profligate civil servants and, um, and we need to cut, cut, cut their benefits. Um, but uh, if you look at the broader picture, what various research has shown is that one of the main reasons that uh, pension costs are in trouble is because states have consistently underfunded them over the years, and the recession uh, sort of dealt a death blow uh, to the whole system and, and, you know, sent it reeling because, um, you know, costs ended up being a much huger burden in the end uh, than anyone had anticipated. So it was a combination of a bad economy and consistent neglect of pension finance over the years. But what was not the culprit is that workers are asking for too much, which is often the implication that you get in a lot of the media coverage. Um, civil servants are actually, all other things being equal, probably in many cases undercompensated uh, compared to their private sector counterparts. Uh, pensions, benefits, these other things that are in their labor package and their in their hard-fought contracts um, are, are actually part of an overall compensation package that, that they have accepted as contract, as part of a social contract with the government as, you know, a lifelong compensation you know, framework. And in many ways, they've taken a pay cut in order to get that pension. So in the end, what you're essentially asking them to do is, is to sacrifice wages. So if we, if we look at it that way, then sort of the balance of responsibility changes. And what we really need is a long-term sustainable solution to build retirement equity and uh, security towards the end of a worker's life that all workers should be entitled to. And this pitting public sector workers against private sector workers is just frankly, you know, it, it's, a, it's a way for uh, conservatives to pit different elements of the working class against each other. And as we saw in Wisconsin and in many other places around the country, it's hurt everyone. And you had a bit to say in Detroit. Yeah, no. I mean, we talked about Detroit recently. We talked about Detroit in depth with Marcy Wheeler um, earlier this fall. And one of the things that is striking about Detroit, right, is that on the one hand, Detroit has become the sort of poster child for the failure of American or the collapse of American manufacturing, right? There are so many cliches about Detroit at this point that I'm not going to regurgitate them all for you because they're terrible. And we we forget sometimes that this was all sort of deliberately done, right? Like, much as the myth of uh, the greedy worker, right, it does double service in Detroit because right now we're seeing with the bankruptcy, the attacks being on the pensions of public workers, as Michelle said, but the greedy auto workers who demanded more money than those companies could pay and made their companies uncompetitive and all of these other, you know, things that workers mysteriously had the power to do. Um, that is what put Detroit under in the first place, according to 
these people, not the fact that those auto manufacturers decided that outsourcing manufacturing and driving down wages would be a great idea, um, or that, you know, in some instances they made moved plants over the border in Canada because the workers there got universal health care paid for by the government and the company didn't have to pay for health insurance for its workers. Again, you mean the universal health care that all these conservatives actually also hate on? Weird, yeah. yeah weird. Ironic. Um, <laughs> ironic. So once again, we have the different sections of the working class being pitted against each other, right? And in either case, it's these these darned workers demanded too much. Well, I mean, personally, I I don't ever believe that story when it comes my way. And again, right, we saw in both cases, workers who had agreed to a contract, workers who had agreed to defer some of their wages as their retirement, now it's being taken away from them. This is, as everybody um, was saying on Twitter, hashtag pension theft. And it's it's deeply related to wage theft, but it's being done in a different way, right? Wage theft is sort of what your boss gets away with when he's pulling one over on you. Pension theft is being done out in the open, very, very bluntly, and be and being told you're being told that it is for our own good. Um, it's being done by legal fiat, yes, or by you know legislative fiat in the case of Illinois. Or the shenanigans of bankruptcy lawyers. Or the shenanigans of bankruptcy right. lawyers. And, and Detroit is unique because it's sort of the doomsday scenario where, uh, you know, the fate of the city's finances are, are in the hands of a bankruptcy court, right? Right, which is that's, horrifying. That's even and worse not, than having it in the legislature. And this, Detroit's not the first city to declare bankruptcy. It is the largest. Mm-hmm. Um, or we should not say that the city actually declared bankruptcy. That would imply that there was a democratic process involved. What actually happened was that the state of Michigan... Um, voted to overturn the emergency manager law, which then the legislature and the governor turned around and put right back in place and then appointed an emergency manager who he filed for bankruptcy. So the city did not file for anything. One guy who was appointed by one Republican governor filed for something. In any case, Detroit is definitely the doomsday scenario. We don't actually know exactly what's going to happen to the workers' pensions. So once again, this is a subject we will most definitely be returning to. But it is certainly a negative, and it's certainly going to be the site of one of the big battles this year. Right. And pensions aren't even in the worst sort of uh, in the worst shape among the city's different financial aspects. So you know the whole the whole thing is kind of um, uh, kind of in a big in a big uh, quagmire right now. So um, hopefully, you know, something if nothing else, we can see it as you know a, a way you know something for workers to avoid around the country. Anyway, so uh, my other big negative story is another one sort of international implications. Um, Um, It was um, the collapse of the immigration reform process um, in, well, um, the Senate did pass a, a you know, an overarching comprehensive bill. It died in the House. Neither of the bills really were particularly um, satisfactory from a labor standpoint. Um, both of them uh, sort of struck um, a devil's bargain with uh, major uh, employers, corporations, the agricultural industry, the tech industry, to um, perpetuate the system of, uh, you know, immigrants being treated primarily as economic goods and not as people. So um, the Senate bill would have expanded uh, the so-called, you know, the visa system, which is essentially a guest worker program. It would have created a new system of visas that would have allowed in more workers and would have provided somewhat more flexibility as, as well as more access to legalization. Um, it would have created a provisional um, immigrant status process that would have supposedly given some of the undocumented workers of this country um, a, a so-called path to citizenship. But of course, the devil was in the details. And in the end, many of the more progressive, more radical immigrant groups uh, rejected this whole approach, uh, not only because of its overarching sort of neoliberal um, uh, structure, um, again, commodifying um, immigrants as, as a source of cheap labor, but also the fact that it tended to um, favor certain categories of workers, such as farm workers would have gotten sort of a, a leg up in the uh, provisional immigration status uh, process. Tech workers also would have been fast-tracked, so-called STEM workers, and so-called high-skill workers. And um, a lot of the ordinary, marginalized, often disenfranchised, often most exploited workers in this country would have gotten virtually nada. Um, uh, Another issue is that many of the people who... uh, 
you know, would deserve uh, the, the right to stay in this country and, uh, and work legally uh, would have been shut out of the process altogether. So uh, the problem was that um, people really feared that um, if they passed this legislation, they would essentially be locking uh, the entire immigration system into um, a, a new bureaucracy that would be basically um, excluding potentially millions and millions of undocumented people um, because the uh, the provisional status process would require things like um, really tight background checks, um, it would have very high fees, um, and it would probably um, deter a lot of people from even applying because it was such a daunting application process and you would have to be waiting for, you know, well over a decade in many cases just for the right to remain legally in this country, to get a green card, right? And, and you know, to say nothing of actual citizenship. So, um, uh, you know, it, it was basically setting up a system that was uh, meant to fail, that was meant to exclude people. And uh, ultimately, you know, people, many people concluded that um, this reform, so-called reform, would have been worse than no reform at all. And so in that sense, that was one of the reasons it, it collapsed. And so, I mean, I don't want to say it was both a blessing and a curse, but it's not the worst thing in the world that this, um, uh, you know, Senate bill uh, failed in the end, uh, not least least because attached to these paltry um, legalization reforms were these really draconian border security measures that would have encouraged um, an even deeper crackdown on undocumented immigrants, would have beefed up the border with all manner of surveillance technology, further militarized the U.S.-Mexico border, encouraged ICE to further attack people's civil liberties, and basically would have done nothing to change the ultimately pretty racist um, uh, exploitative superstructure of the immigration system, which is basically ensuring that immigrants will provide an eternal uh, surplus army of labor um, that is meant to, uh, you know, keep uh, wages as low as possible in many sectors and allow um, all workers essentially to uh, get screwed by corporations. Um, and ultimately did nothing to challenge some of the core human rights issues. And, of course, it would have disenfranchised people like, you know, women who often do not migrate with work visas, right? So all of those things taken together uh, meant that it would have actually propped up inequality in the immigration system rather than alleviated some of it. So um, if you want to read more about immigration, there's plenty of it that I've written on in these times, and some other uh, great commentators that you won't read about in the mainstream media um, have been agitating around this too. But I encourage you to think out Outside the box and don't even listen to the Democrats on immigration reform because that's not where um, the really progressive ideas are coming forward on this. So in terms of negative stories, negative things that happened this year, um, I have to give a shout out to Facebook um, Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandberg and her book Lean In because the conversation that that book spawned depressed the heck out of me in terms of feminism having any connection to workers' issues. Lean In, of course, was sort of the manifesto that, like, women just need to work harder in order to be equal to men, and if we just work really hard, then we too can be chief operating officer of a massive tech company that... Um, doesn't have any other women in high up positions and that clearly Sheryl Sandberg getting to that high up position is just that she worked harder than the rest of us and it had nothing to do with her mentor Larry uh, Larry Summers or any other series of events and you know Sheryl Sandberg wrote a self-help book for well-off women fine the more depressing thing about this was how many people that I used to think had more of a connection to the struggles of, you know, the vast majority of women who will never be chief operating officer of anything and are just struggling to pay the bills and are often leaning in so hard already that they might die of it, or sometimes they do die of it. Um, We're talking about a world in which the fastest growing job, as we mentioned earlier, is home care worker, which is a job that has no overtime protections or anything like that. You You mean the people who take care of Sheryl Sandberg's kids? Possibly, yes. Mm -hmm. I don't know what Sheryl Sandberg's nanny situation actually is. Um, But yeah, and so when, when that conversation, when some of us tried to raise that, several of these points in that conversation, we were accused of being bad to other women and of trying to sort of tear them down. And like, honestly, I've got nothing against Sheryl Sandberg. Um, I have something against the 
boss class as a whole, I would say, I suppose. Um, this is not personal. It's not about me disliking Sheryl Sandberg and wishing that a different rich white woman had written a different self-help manual for other rich white women. It's a question of feminism in its current mainstream form being very, very disconnected from the issues of working women. And that is something that I really want to see change in the next year. Mm-hmm. And not, and there are also very interesting debates. I mean, if, if the Sheryl Sandberg book was good for one thing, it was also, um, it was good for opening debates that offered sort of a counterpoint to the lean-in experience, because yeah, that experience that is, is simply true. not accessible to, say, women of color, right? That is women true. Women without a college degree. Yeah. Um, women who are not tracked all of their lives into the perfect corporate position where they they get to so-called have it all, right? right. Um, not every woman gets to have it all. Not or only everyone wants to have it all. Whatever when it, it all is, is defined by Sheryl Sandberg yeah. and her ilk. So um, let's just, you know. Um, and of course, I, I like how the media often tends to uh, reduce every debate about women's issues that goes on between women into a cat fight because right. they love nothing more than to see every debate about women's issues right. as women tearing each other apart. Right. So yep. yeah. Yep. So that says a lot, I think, about the meta conversation. Yes. But so we also wanted to shed some light on some things that were sort of undercovered this year that were um, perhaps more important than the attention paid to them. So, Michelle, what was your... Uh uh, my undercovered was sort of um, a, a roundup, I guess, of, of uh, well, my, my big undercovered was just the fact that we don't uh, hear a lot about workers who die in the job. So uh, the, the, um, the, the deaths of workers uh, that you didn't hear about um, in various workplaces uh, this year are my big undercovered story. So they fall under the big umbrella the, the, of, uh, of silenced uh, workers in, in some ways. And, and um, it's important to recognize that all of these are often seen as individual accidents. You know, we see even things like the fertilizer facility explosion in Texas and the BP um, oil rig explosion, right, as terrible accidents, right? And, uh, you and know, who the, could have seen them coming? Right, and the company gets a slap on the wrist, they get a fine, you know, so maybe maybe it'll get sued by the aggrieved family members, and, you know, everybody goes home, you know, we don't hear about it ever again. Uh, sometimes, you know, no admission of guilt, they settle out of court, whatever. Um, but the fact is that a lot of these issues lead back to systemic problems within the regulatory system. First of all, um, regulations simply being inadequate. Also, um, you know, the uh, occupation, Occupational Safety and Health Administration being woefully underfunded and terribly understaffed. Um, they, they can really, uh, I think according to uh, the National Occupational Safety and Health Network, uh, investigators at OSHA can only inspect a workplace once every 131 years on average, right? So that is... Gee. Yeah, so many workers evidently will, will die before their workplace ever gets inspected by of natural causes because it takes 131 freaking years. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, so... Uh, Hopefully you know, no one is working 131 years at any one given workplace. Right, right. Um, but, you know, over over the span of like three generations, right, right. Um, you, might, you might be lucky enough and, and win the OSHA jackpot. So... Um, and, and meanwhile, workers are, are dying. Uh, they're dying in agriculture from pesticide exposure. They're dying in coal mines, not only because of mining accidents, as we often do see, but uh, because of things like black lung, which take an insidious toll on workers' health. Uh, the Obama administration has continually refused to act on rulemakings that would be crucial for giving OSHA the enforcement power to go after things like silica dust, which we know, you know, study after study has shown over the years that it causes fatal harm to the respiratory system, and yet uh, the government is still not doing anything about it, and corporations are able to, you know, continually lobby against these these rules and um, push back against things like, you know, child labor laws in agriculture. I mean, things that are, are so basic that you would have just assumed that this country would have taken care of them by now, but no. I mean, our, our, our regulatory system is frankly 131 years behind the times, if not more. So that is my big undercovered story, and uh, sadly, I think next year it'll be just as undercovered, but we'll see. We'll see. Well, I'm going to try to cheer everybody up again after, after Michelle brings us back down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I cough up I... my black lung mucus into a <laughs> Now, now. <laughs> this is perhaps not undercovered by me, but um, I spent a lot of time this, this year over the last few months covering the organizing of the New York State Nurses Association, 1199 SEIU, and their community allies around hospital closures here in 
New York, in, specifically in Brooklyn, but there have been hospital closures and department closures all over the city. So at the same time as workers are dying on the wor- in the workplace, places where those workers who are dying or ill because of the workplace are being taken are also being shut down. And so it's been a depressing mess to follow the myriad ways in which hospitals try to avoid doing what their job is, which is taking care of sick people. But watching the the fight that these unions have put up has been really inspiring and really amazing, and they've managed to keep winning. This week alone, um, the State University of New York, which runs the Long Island College Hospital in Cobble Hill in Brooklyn, had another meeting where they were supposed to vote on whether they were going to sell the hospital to somebody that would turn it into an urgent care center and turn the rest of its buildings into high-end condos. And the unions showed up with a whole bunch of people, and the board adjourned the vote until there is a new mayor. And Strikingly, this became a really big issue in the mayor's race here in New York. Yeah. Um, and by the way, our new mayor is the guy who got arrested. Our new mayor is the guy that I watched get arrested yeah. protesting this, um, not too far from here, actually. And so this went from being something that happened sort of silently under previous administrations. St. Vincent's Hospital in the, um, or in the East Village was notably shut down a few years ago. This was something that just happened, that you couldn't really stop. And now it has been at least for now stopped it has been held off for most of this year and so this is the kind of of community labor alliance that i think is really hopeful for labor which leads me into our last little bit of this uh year in review michelle what are you hopeful about for 2014 what am i hopeful about um, be hopeful be yes. hopeful <clears throat> you can do okay, it okay right so now i'm this is my uh, the bipolar swing that I try to end sorry, every episode sorry. with. So now I'm going to get in, in good mood mode, and um, I'm going to say that I'm 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 some I'm cautiously optimistic and somewhat hopeful for global supply chain organizing. And what that means is I'm thinking specifically of the garment workers in Bangladesh and how they became sort of a worldwide phenomenon. Um, they could have been, you know, my undercover story. I could have been sitting here railing about how these miserable garment workers in in Bangladesh. Uh, you know, is something that nobody cares about, and they're dying, and nobody cares about them. Uh, but uh, they they seized the media spotlight, and they turned a terrible tragedy into an opportunity to sort of mobilize not only consumers but labor unions and uh, human rights advocates around the world around the plight of workers in one of the poorest countries in the world with some of the most disenfranchised, most marginalized workforces. Um, and they did it by drawing a very stark and very clear connection between their struggle in these unsafe factories, such as the Rana Plaza um, building that uh, that collapsed and killed, um, you know, uh, well over a thousand workers and uh, injured many, many more and uh, created a nationwide scandal. So, you know, after that happened, they turned that tragedy into an opportunity to mobilize. And, you know, the, their fight is still ongoing. They're, um, they've been battling for a higher minimum wage, which it looks like they're getting, but still obviously not enough to bring them in line with, you know, international standards. But they are slowly uh, moving towards both legislative change and also corporate accountability. And their story actually kind of blew the lid on this um, kind of rather shady business of corporations using an internal audit system to sort of rubber stamp their terrible labor practices. Mm -hmm. And what companies like Walmart, Gap, and other brands that are tied to the factory facilities that have seen these horrible accidents, just fires and building collapses over the years. A a lot of those brands with workers' blood on their hands, uh, they get away with, you know, virtually scot-free because they have plausible deniability when it comes to a factory collapse, say. They can say, oh, well, you know, our internal audit, you know, it said everything was fine. And basically, you know, if these workers died or got injured, not our fault. And we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll cut our contract with them. We'll get a contract with a new producer in Bangladesh and uh, everything will be fine, right? No one can sue us. No one can do anything. We don't owe those workers anything, right? Now what uh, workers are pushing in Bangladesh and um, 
uh, activists like Kavona Actor, who we've listened to on the show before. She and her fellow activists are leading a grassroots effort to not only build union power in the garment sector, but also uh, create a global framework for corporate accountability. And for the first time, the Bangladesh Building Fire Health and Safety Accord would um, establish a system by which corporations like Walmart and Gap would be held accountable for safety violations, and they would be held financially responsible for ensuring that those facilities are safe. So it actually would give them a financial stake in making sure that workers are not being placed in factories where there is an imminent chance of them dying every time they go in for work, which as consumers in this country, we should all be thankful for this holiday season because, frankly, we have all benefited from cheap prices on our clothing, right? We are all complicit in this. And so what I hope that uh, stories like the Rana Plaza factory will have done uh, by the end of this year is seed sort of a new global consciousness in seeing people and having people, you know, sort of put together, connect the dots in the global supply chain. We already see this happening with Walmart workers. You know, we had Walmart workers protesting in solidarity with some of the Bangladesh workers who've made Walmart clothing. Uh, we see the same thing with warehouse workers forming alliances with government workers. We need to recognize that um, sort of the neoliberal model of production, which is a completely globalized phenomenon, really needs to be challenged on a global scale. And that can only be done by looking consumers, workers in the global south and workers in the global north and seeing that we're all being screwed by the same guy. Just that one guy. Um, well, <laughs> in, <laughs> no. my, in my head, it, uh, is, uh, it is the guy. It yes, is the man. It's the man. Um, so I am going to be incredibly optimistic about something that has been incredibly depressing this year, right? We've seen the battle for public schools take a lot of hits. We've seen schools closed all over the place. We've seen billionaires buying school board elections in places that they have no business being. Um, But we've also seen the movement to save public schools, to protect teachers' rights, to cut down on standardized testing. We've seen that take shape in really interesting ways. We've seen students, teachers, and parents working together. And I really think that this is the only the beginning. And there are a few things that sort of on a broader political scale that I do think are changing, that the, the messaging and the conversation about them in public is shifting. And, and one of those, I used actually this piece as my ARG, I wish I'd written that a while back now, a cover story in the New Republic about Michelle Rhee that was really, really critical of Michelle Rhee and what she's done by somebody who is not a raging commie like I am. Um, and so I think that that tide is turning. So I, who's Michelle Rhee? Just Michelle Rhee is the former D.C. schools chancellor, the head of Students First, and of course, a huge shill for corporate ed reform. And she is growing less popular. So I am very, very hopeful about what's going to happen on this front in 2014. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say that good things are going to happen on that front. Yeah, no, no. I, I, and uh, I should also say that right, right here in New York, we've actually seen some really promising sort of radical strands of the education movement. It's like, it's sort of the rank and file of the teachers union is actually even more radical than what the, you know, mainline teachers unions are saying. So yeah. um, that's, that's really important to keep in mind that the, 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 within the, um, the education uh, labor movement itself, uh, yeah. we actually see sort we're, of right, we're seeing diversifying and, and new ideas coming out. So yeah. Um, Again, you know, we'll see what happens. Very exciting. So this this is uh, our favorite part of the show, right? And it, it is our arg to round up 2013. Our I 2013 guess. arg. I wish I'd written that. Yeah. Arg. What do you wish you'd written? Uh, my arg is written by Stephanie McMillan, and it was run on Common Dreams this week. And it is called "Why Environmentalists Should Support Working Class Struggles." Um, and this may intrigue some of you, just the title alone, because we're not often used to hearing the words "working class" um, in the same line as environmentalists and often it's uh you know when you do 
link the two. It's about tensions, right, between the blue collar workers who are supporting the Keystone Pipeline and the right. and the um, uh, you know the the do-gooder environmentalists who are trying to block the Keystone Pipeline. And it's seen as this sort of blue versus green battle, right? And uh, it, it's seen you know never the twine shall meet. But she flips the script basically, and she says that um, in order to address environmental devastation, environmentalists need to recognize that class struggle as a part of overturning um, the system that exploits and plunders the environment. And at the same time, uh, workers need to recognize that their struggle for social justice is intricately linked with the battle for environmental equity, environmental justice, and uh, basically recognizing that the fate of the planet is also their fate uh, as, as economic citizens. By linking those two, she sort of comes forward with a really interesting proposition, which is to say that, you know, although the working class is sometimes blamed for being environmentally unenlightened, you know, oh, wasteful, or, you know, they don't understand that fossil fuels are really killing them, or, you know, auto workers want to build more cars while we want to cut cars, right? So, but, you know, class struggle is part of a struggle for saving the planet. Um, she basically says that environmental revolution is also a revolution that must destroy capitalism, and the destruction of capitalism will only happen if we recognize that our fate is intertwined with that of our surrounding ecology. Um, and she puts forward a very interesting idea towards the end, which is uh, directly challenging a lot of the ethos of modern-day environmentalism, which is based on sort of moral suasion, market values, the idea that everybody will do the right thing if they just, you know, buy better life bulbs and drive a Prius and like go on this march, right? Um, she basically says um, they don't think enough outside the box. They're not radical enough, right? And they need to support workers' struggles because they need to recognize that they not only need to be in solidarity with the working class, but they also need to recognize that in order to take down the destructive forces that are exploiting the environment, they need to also dismantle capitalism. So she says many classes and social groups are dominated by capital and have an interest in ending it and often a burning desire to do so. But most of them, even if they resist capital's effects extremely valiantly, will not be able to permanently defeat it. This flows from their own economic survival imperative under capitalism, the constant struggle to elevate their position in the marketplace. Thus, they will insist on equality, quote, horizontalism, fairness, marketplace values. But they will always stop short of destroying the market itself. Then she goes on to actually say that those blue-collar workers that environmentalists are always poo-pooing on are actually in the best position to fight for the environment. She says the only class that is in fundamental conflict with capital is the working class. They face capital every day in an unresolvable, antagonistic relationship of exploitation. Emancipating themselves entails stopping exploitation, wage slavery, private appropriation of surplus value, generating commodity production, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, standard leftist stuff. But she links that together with um, challenging the forces that are destroying our natural resources. And so I think it's really important to frame it that way because rather than seeing labor as being a separate battle from environmental struggles, uh, we actually need to see it as all working towards one better world. She obviously oversimplifies things. I, I don't think that global revolution will be brought about uh, simply by, you know, getting workers to sort to magically link arms with environmentalists and realize that we're all fighting the man. No, I mean, it's going to take a lot of work to build a united front like that. But I think it's important that at least someone out there is seeding the idea that um, working class struggles and struggles in the workplace, struggles for unions, uh, you know, even though they appear to work within the capitalist system to a degree, frankly, environmentalism at this stage does too. And what we all need to be getting past is um, these structures that have sort of colonized every aspect of our lives. And maybe by keeping our eyes on the fate of the environment, on the fate of the planet, we can actually move towards a bigger idea of what it means to be citizens of the world. So, yay, 2014! And from that note, I have a special holiday-themed ARG for you guys this week, because it turns out, according to a piece by Kevin Hartnett at the Boston Globe, that, um, well, the question in the title is, was Dickens's Christmas Carol borrowed from the Lowell's Mill Girls? And, of course, this is just fascinating, right? A Christmas Carol is the quintessential myth of this season it's you know the the as michelle made a reference to scrooge this is the um scrooge is 
of course, the the anti-hero of A Christmas Carol. He is a lousy boss, among many other things. That jobs with justice does their annual Scrooge of the Year. This is, you know, the the character has been adopted by the labor movement. Um, one of my, a little digression, one of my favorite stories this week that I did not make it into the podcast already was that um, a Teamster local that represents funeral directors and drivers in Chicago bought the CEO of the funeral corporation, which is a creepy thing that exists, tickets to a production of A Christmas Carol, hoping that it would change his heart because he's locked out the workers for 170 days. Um, And it turns out that this wonderful story of this sort of redemption of a lousy boss um, who learns how to be a better man to his employee, among other things, was actually probably borrowed from publications written by mill workers in Lowell, Massachusetts, when Dickens visited America. And he had a very positive opinion of Lowell, partly because these women who worked in the mills who were organizing had publications in which they wrote things like short stories about people who were visited by ghosts and decided to turn their lives around and other fun details. This article was based on some research that is done by literary scholars, and of course I am a former English major, and so I cannot get over this. Natalie McKnight is a professor of English and a dean at Boston University. Chelsea Bray was an undergraduate at, who is now in graduate school at Boston College when they were working on this research, and... I think this is fascinating. Um, they make the point in this in this piece that you know, sort of literary borrowing is not it's not the same as plagiarism. It wasn't you know it wasn't completely cut and pasted, and that actually maybe Dickens meant to honor these young women who are not normally thought of as literary actors by borrowing from them. I right, I come from a world in which women's writing is quite often made invisible and. Um, made less important than that of the famous man. And so I think, yeah, it would have been if nice. Charles to, Dickens. It would have been think, nice to give the I, Mill Girls yeah, some credit. I think credit. you should throw the, the Lowell Mill Girls a bit of a bone. So this year, if you are making reference to Scrooge or A Christmas Carol, going to see a performance, or in any way thinking about that famous story, you should know that it probably came in part from the works of working class women in Massachusetts. Right. It goes to show you that that workers have always been good at telling their own stories. And uh, maybe we just need to listen more. Yes. And um, and by the way, that's why you should listen to More Belabored next year. Yes, we will be back in the new year. We will not be around next week because we will be doing various fun and exciting holiday things. And we hope that you are doing fun and exciting holiday things as well. We will be back in the new year. Tweet at us, hashtag belabored. Tell us your best and worst stories of the year, things that are undercovered, things that you would like to see us cover next year. Anything we, else you feel like sharing? What your big undercover <laughs> Tell us how your Christmas was. was. Anything you would like, we love to hear from you. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks. Happy Festivus. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey, twin, if I cannot, we can't go.